on page 1477 in your pew Bible. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Moving down to verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The second passage is in John, chapter 17. It's on page 1646. We'll be starting at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Good morning, guys. I hope you're excited for this series. Oh, wait, there's supposed to be a... Th- I, sorry, I jumped off the video thing. My bad, guys. Um, there was a really inspiring like video bumper that I just totally ruined. Um... But I hope you're excited for this series. I very much am. It's been like two years coming for me. I was writing this book for the fall last year, and it just wasn't really done, and the election was coming, and that Onward book came out by um, Russell Moore that we thought was really helpful. And so I was like, yeah, let's put it off till next year because I'm just not done. The thoughts aren't totally clear yet. And so like for me, this has really been a two-year process. And um, for those of you who are newer to High Point, um, you might not know this, but I'm, I'm not known for a lot of emoting as a pastor. Um, I, I, I'm kind of a teacher, engineer who didn't make his calling kind of thing. And so I like to take things apart and like, this is how it works, right? And I wrote this book, and we're doing this series, for almost entirely emotional reasons. And you'll find that I'm going to come at it from something that is not a particularly a mode of perspective, <laughs> but it's almost entirely about our emotions to start with. And this is what I mean by that. Um, when I first got here, I wanted to pastor a church that was, that was as Christian, as full of Jesus as possible, and as, as full of the goodness of Christ affecting others as possible. And one thing that I recognized was that how, how pastors normally do that is they get up on stage and they preach the Bible and they say, do more stuff to people. And I, I was very serious about this commitment. I've said it publicly a couple times, but it, it was very serious for Lexi and I that we, I would never tell anyone to do something that I wasn't doing for at least a year first. Because otherwise— it just might be utterly unrealistic, even though it sounds really good. And if I couldn't figure out how to do it, then I probably shouldn't expect everybody else to do it. And people tell me, like, Nick, actually, life is more complicated than you think, and you have four children. Not everybody's life is as crazy as yours. Maybe, but I, how would I know about yours, right? And half your lives are as crazy as mine. And one of the things I, but one of the things I began to realize as I was working this through is there were certain emotions that I was dealing with as a dad of four and as spending a lot of time at work and as like trying to live like this fruitful yet peaceful, devoted to Jesus, yet active and productive, yet restful and like everything altogether kind of life. And I, what, I, what I realized was that I, I really couldn't deny that there were at least times and sometimes more times than I would want to admit that basically all of the emotions that Jesus said my trust in him should help with were intensely present in my life. 
anxiety, which is really a sophisticated way of saying fear. It's just more humility when you admit that it's fear, right? But anxiety is even just being afraid of you know not what, right? Or weariness. Um, Jill said it. Jill was like, yeah, there's a sense of weariness. I said, okay, let me ask ask you if this is what you mean. It's a weariness that is not healed with rest. And then a bunch of people were like, yes, that—it's not just that I'm tired. It's like there's this weariness, and you can rest, and you can decompress, and you can do things that are supposed to make you feel better, and you don't feel better. You feel just as weary as you have been. Or resentment. And we—you don't want to—we don't admit this, but resentment of like the most important people in our lives. Resentment towards God— God, why did you say that this—that life is like a gift? That this is—that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and we'll find rest for our souls. But what I'm finding is that my life is hard, it is not easy, and I am not at peace. And I'm upset with you about it. Or that we resent our spouses. There's a lot of marriages on the rocks. And I—in the church, outside of the church, just everybody I talk to, it's like marriage is a super hard thing, okay? A hundred years ago— you, half your children would have died before they were five, okay? That's when marriage was hard. Marriage isn't hard now. Marriage is the easiest thing it's ever been. And yet, we find it harder than people have ever found it. And you don't probably admit this very much. It is so obvious to me and more people than you think admit this in the counseling office, how much they resent their children. Are we allowed to be honest here? I I was saying just this week to a group of people that I believe that child-centered parenting is the molech of our generation in the church, and that it is the thing that is most destroying the marriages of the church. When children become an idol, and parents actually— you know, moms start thinking that part of protecting their children is protecting their children from their fathers, and you, you do everything for kids, and it's really a horrifically unnatural thing, and you, you can't really resent your kids openly, but you can resent your spouse and hate your marriage, and people are—people just, they don't want to admit it, but there's so much resentment in their hearts and restlessness— right? My youth is slipping away. I don't want to be doing this forever. Like younger people having a really difficult time finding a job that's meaningful enough for their one life, their one youth. Like, is this relationship meaningful enough? Is this job meaningful enough? Well, no. I mean, like, no, if you think that way. If you think like an atheist, and you're just this perishing moment, and you're only young once, there could, there could never be enough women or enough men. There could never be enough money. There could never be enough meaning. There could ne- I mean, you'd be like, well, I'm not, I'm not like licentious about it. I just want to do something really meaningful. It's still idolatry. <laughs> Your job is a second thing, and it isn't God. It is a limited terrestrial thing. It can never be that big, right? And yet, we kind of want it to be, and that's why we're so restless about it. And what it leads us to is that all the stresses— raise up in us this compulsiveness about everything. We eat compulsively. We flip through our phones compulsively. We binge on TV programs compulsively. We just do everything compulsively. We're just like pigs snorting around and eating stuff. Like, it's almost like we can't control ourselves at all. It's like it's impossible. And if somebody says, hey, you should control yourself, we like throw up our hands and wet ourselves with the inanity of the possibility that we're capable of some kind of self-control. And then our children are idiots and can't control themselves, and we, we know we can't say anything to them. We can't stop ourselves from eating the Twinkies. Right? We're unhappy. Okay? And I find this everywhere. Outside of the church, I find it everywhere. Inside of the church, I find it much more present than you would think, right? If Jesus is saying stuff like, you're going to find peace for your soul, and my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and you're going to—it's going to be fine. And then I talk with Christians, and they are struggling— and they're, they're like, what is going on? And I find it in me. I was reading through my prayer journal and just 
page after page after page. I need to give up this hobby. Why can't I give up this hobby and love my family more? I need to treat, I need to confront this person in this relationship. Why do I care what they think about me? Why don't I just do the loving thing? And I find myself struggling with this, these same things. And when, when we struggle like this, you know, when we have something like our faith, it's not working, and we go, we go, the first thing is like we're just frustrated, right? We get kind of like, it's kind of like, think about it like kind of like a computer problem. You're like, oh, this glitch, I don't need this right now, it's really frustrating. And then we go, well, maybe the issue is with me, maybe I can fix it. And so we go, all right, like, let's, let's see if we can sort this out. And we try everything we know how to do, right? And I don't know if you realize this, but it, as long as you know one more thing to do, Stress doesn't go to 10, right? It'll stay somewhere around 3. Because if this thing you're doing right now doesn't work, there's another thing you can try and maybe that'll work. It's kind of like looking for your keys, right? As long as there's one more place your keys might be, you're not going to flip out, right? As long as there's one more place your phone might be, right? But when you, when you look in that last place and you literally can't think of any other place where your phone could possibly be and your phone is not in that place, that's when you start, like, having a panic attack, Right? Because you don't know what else to try. And you see, that is where so many Christians are. So many people who have left the church, that's where they got to. They got to this place where they, where it wasn't like they thought Jesus promised. They didn't know what else to try. They couldn't figure out what's wrong. They knew they were not experiencing peace, that they were having plenty of anxiety. They were resenting everyone. They didn't like God. And they just thought, well, then Jesus said it, didn't say it was supposed to be like this. And so there's something wrong with this. And so either out of despair we give up, or out of anger we just want to tear the thing down. And I, I just, I see it in my heart, and I see it in people, I, Christians I talk to, and I, I see it when I talk about the way of Jesus with people who have often left the church. And the part of the problem, though, is, is that there's a very stark difference between two things. Our feelings about this and what Jesus actually said and did about this that we keep ignoring. And that is that we feel like that Jesus has kind of left us out to dry on this thing. And because Jesus isn't that mean, it probably just means there isn't a Jesus. And so a lot of us have this, this sort of sneaking erosion under our faith, and we're losing our faith, even though we're trying to play the good Christian— and meanwhile, the very thing that we're experiencing, the thing that's making us crazy, the thing that makes us want to give up, the thing that we think is somehow some weird secret we have no idea what to do about, is actually a thing that Jesus talked about constantly. He repeated on numerous occasions, and he said it would be the biggest difficulty in our spiritual life. That if something destroyed our faith, it would be this thing. And yet, we have the capacity to read the Bible over, to listen to sermons— to write sermons, and to completely miss it. But in Matthew chapter 6, this passage frames it really well. Because the, the verses in front of the verses we're talking about this morning, Jesus attacks a kind of worldliness that is religious. So if you start in the very first verse of chapter 6, he says, quit doing your righteous acts in front of people. Because when you do them in front of people, it's almost impossible not to do it for people's sake. So when you pray, don't get up in front of people and pray all sanctimoniously. When you fast, don't show everybody you're fasting and act all hungry. When you give, don't—like—like, like, I, was at, I was at the UW football game yesterday, right? Like, everybody that gives, it's like, and thank you for giving Wisconsin Athletics. And like, there's—you're on the jumbotron and everything. It's like literally the opposite of what Jesus said to do, Right? But that's what we do because you ought to get some marketing for it, for God's sake, right? Because the earth is all that matters. It seems like virtually all the charity that's happening, it's much as marketing. Jesus talked about this. He's like, don't, don't do that. Your giving should be anonymous. So that it was about God and not about you and your marketing of yourself. Right? It's just hypocrisy. It's just religious. It's religious worldliness, right? And then after the passage we look at today, he talks about just like, like pragmatic, I can't trust God, I just got to get stuff, run by our desires worldliness, right? Like, I just got to—I got to—I got to buy the clothes, I got to get the food, I got to get the job, I got to do the stuff. And he's like, would you just relax? You don't—you don't have to be that worried. 
in both of those, that sort of like godless worldliness and the religious hypocrite worldliness, they're both worldliness. They both have nothing to do with the life of Christ and the life of God. And in the middle, these verses, he talks about what is wrong with that and why that's going to kill us and how that ought to function, right? And so he says, this is what he says. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness, right? So here's the idea, right? People in the ancient world used to talk about people's eyes darkening as they aged or as they lost their eyesight, right? And so the idea here was is that your eyes had light or darkness in them, meaning you could either see or you couldn't see, right? And so he's doubling up the metaphor on good and evil. If you're—if you can see what's there, if you have the capacity of sight, right, you can—that is, you can see what's good and evil. You can see what's right or wrong. You, if you can see accurately, then your life will get ordered by that. And so if there's light in your eyes, there'll be light in your life. If there's darkness in your eyes, you can't see right, there'll be darkness in your life. That's the way it's going to work. Okay, so then what is the most fundamental question of seeing then? What is the thing that you absolutely have to see if your eyes are going to be full of light and therefore your body full of light, as opposed to your eyes being full of darkness and your life being full of darkness? And he says, and so it's the very next sentence. He says, no one can serve two masters. Because either he will love one and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Now, in most of our English translations, they translate that word mammon, money, now, which I think is a really bad thing to do, though they're trying to make it so that people can read their Bibles and not get confused. Jesus is the only person in the Bible who talks quite this way. Now, the question is, why? Like, Jesus could have said worldliness. That's what he's talking about. And yet he doesn't. He says mammon. And I think the reason he did that is because he's talking about two persons. He's talking about two gods. He's like, you can't have two masters. And so whatever stands for this conceptual, like, worldliness thing, he makes it a person. Mammon. It's the name of a god. And he's saying, this is a master. It's a god. It's a religion. It's a faith. And then there's God, who is a God who stands for a truth, and there is a faith in him, and there is a, therefore, a religion surrounding what it means to be devoted to him. And you just can't be devoted to both. You can't be emotionally devoted to both. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. And you can't be functionally devoted to both. You can't serve one and not despise the other. You can't have two, and if you try to have two, you're just going to get torn apart. The way Jesus says this in Mark's gospel is he's talking about a plant growing up. And he says, worldliness is like this choking vine that grows up around it. And he says, it basically amounts to these things. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. They come and they choke the word. Do you remember me talking about this? Like, I think that that's a really good—that's how I was feeling. And so many Christians, that's how—that's— if I, if I said—they're talking about their frustration with their life and their spouse and their kids and their, their job and their stuff, and they're just like—you can just feel the frustration all over them. And I, and I say to them, now, very commonly now, I say this, do you feel kind of like your faith is being choked? And they don't know this is where I'm going. And they go, yes. And I go, Great. Because we know what does that. What Jesus is saying to us is that the problem is not our religion. The problem is not our faith in him. The problem is that we have a second unacknowledged religion. We have a second unacknowledged God. We have a second unacknowledged master. And Jesus says the most important thing for us to be able to see, to have light in our eyes and therefore light in our life, is that we have to see the simple fact that there are two masters and you can't have two masters. You can't live torn. It doesn't work. It doesn't live. There's no life in it. There's no peace in it. And that's why—and I know, I know you think this, is, this isn't a sophisticated enough answer. No. No, your in my sophistication is blotting out the simple fact of what is 
always infecting the human heart, and we're all pretty much the same when it comes to this. That we have two masters. We don't will one thing. We're betting on two horses. We're trying to sail in two directions at the same time in the same boat. It doesn't work. It can't work. And because it can't, can't work, it's tearing you apart. And you're upset about Jesus. You're upset with Jesus about it. And you shouldn't be. He couldn't have been clearer with us. He couldn't have been more honest with us. He couldn't have been more direct with us. He couldn't have explained it more clearly. He couldn't have gone over it more times. It couldn't be repeated in any more ways, in any more books of the Bible. It's on every page of the Bible. We just don't see it because we don't want to see it. I found this online. This is an ad for the, the religion mammon. It says, Dean Sachs has a mortgage, a family, and an extremely demanding job. What he doesn't need is a religion that complicates his life with unreasonable ethical demands. Spiritual providers in the past have required a huge amount of commitment. Single deity clauses, compulsory goodness, and a litany of mystifying mumbo-jumbo. It's no wonder people are switching to mammon. Mammon isn't the biggest player in the spiritual race, but our ability to deliver on our promises is unique and our moral flexibility unmatchable. And we just don't want to admit how much we feel like that guy. How much we're frustrated with Jesus' singularity. And how much we want to have something that's more flexible, creating more options that we feel like we might need to be happy. But you see, Jesus, everything that Christ gives, he gives only as people become themselves in him. He, he gives them on the road to and in the practice of and in the acquisition of maturity, substance. Right? What he said in, in, Isa in Isaiah, Isaiah, sorry to be British, Isaiah, he, he said that in, in those days, the days of the Messiah, the days of redemption, that his people would be oaks of righteousness. Right? That's a very specific thing. Now, a lot of Wisconsin forests should have been thinned of oaks a long time ago. And if you're a deer hunter, you're like, those trees are like bent over. And like, if you've seen a real oak standing alone, it looks like you could put a thousand houses in its branches. It's, it's this, it's this setting multiple century statement of solidity. And what, Je what Jesus is telling us all through the Bible is, is that that is how we receive every good thing he has for us. There is no shortcut. And so the longer we, we waste our time, the longer we fool about with other things, the longer we play around in the kiddie pool of worldliness, the more we wall ourselves off from all the good things Jesus has for us that come through faith leading to maturity. Remember this from 2 Peter 1? Add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you produce the—if you have these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being unproductive. Right? So the first step towards spiritual substance, the first steps towards freedom, the first step towards not being torn of heart, even as a Christian— is to believe the gospel, to believe in Jesus, to believe that we have to repent and believe that there is something that light is supposed to come into our eyes. There is something that we are supposed to see, and we're supposed to see it and leave it. And if we don't see it and leave it, we can never be people of substance. We can never be people of strength. We can never be people who are oaks of righteousness in a world that is increasingly a world of vapor, a world of people who are honestly weak and brittle, and they don't know what to do, and they have no self-control, and they act compulsively, and they, and they wonder why they find their life so unfulfilling. Now, before we get exactly into the see it and leave it, I want to say just a couple things about defining worldliness. Now, and if you've read the book, it's actually in the glossary, there's a definition of worldliness, and it's partly this. 
Worldliness is, when, is all of creation that does not stand consciously under God's rule. That is, worldliness is what is opposed to the kingdom of God. Now, the, the reason why it's important to kind of understand this is worldliness is this very, like, multi-layered, it's kind of like it's in the air we breathe, we kind of grew up in it, and it affects every kind of different thing in life. And because of that, one of the, one of the metaphors I was talking with Nicole about with this this week is it's a, it's a little bit like a spiritual ethnicity. Where you, it's just like, it just kind of gets there into your life, and it's just in everything, but it isn't everything, and yet you almost don't know when you're in it and when you're not in it, right? I don't, I don't really know when I'm being Italian, right? I'm, it's just every time I'm being loud, every time I move my arms when I talk, I, I don't really know. I just know it's there, and it's just, I'm a fish swimming in that water. I don't know what water is, right? And so, one of the difficulties with worldliness is it's re- it can be really hard to put your finger on it entirely. But one of the biblical contrasts would be to say, well, then what's the opposite of worldliness? To give it, like, this relief of distinction, and it would probably be the word godliness, right? To be of the world is to be in the likeness of something. To be, to be an enes, I-N-E-S-S, is to be in the likeness of something. So if, you're, if your life is marked by worldliness, right, then you're marked by the likeness of the world. That is that the world c- controls your heart, your mind, your will. It it directs you. It's what—it's your God, right? It's mammon. It's your master. Godliness would be that you increasingly bear the likeness of the character of God, and that the purposes of God and his kingdom and his righteousness direct the heart, the mind, and the will in you. And that since they're opposites. And one of the—one of the important things to remember about the way worldliness functions is it functions— kind of the way we use the word secular. Now, I say this in the book, and I want to be really clear. There is a Christian kind of secular. If secular just means deeply interested in the terrestrial world for its, for its, own, for its own meaning and purpose, and not just thinking about the angels, right? There can be a Christian secular. In fact, the first use of the word secular was priests that weren't in the monastery, but that were in the village. They were the secular priests, as opposed to the spiritual monks that weren't among normal people who were farming and having children and buying and selling and so on. You could argue the secular priests were more spiritual because they were embedding themselves in directly in real life and being spiritual in the midst of all of it. It's a Christian secular, but that kind of secular isn't the one we're doing as a Western culture. And what, what it does is it separates these things that are supposed to be together. So spirituality isn't being against the secular, or against the creation, or against the world, or against matter. Following Jesus and knowing what that means is not allowing for a a division between the sacred and the secular, the creation and the creator, the world and the kingdom, matter and meaning, the terrestrial and the transcendent, or the city of God and the city of man. We don't acknowledge a, disti- a, a separation, a hard separation between those two. Because the minute you do that, what pe- the way people start behaving is, the minute you live in a house that has windows but no skylights to the transcendent, where you only pay attention to the terrestrial, is that that's really all that matters. And before you know it, that's all you're allowed to talk about. And before you know it, that's all anybody really believes exists. But you see, Jesus believed that you couldn't inhabit this as a, as a human, as a kind of image of God-bearing spiritual creature that we are, without understanding what can only be seen through the skylights of faith, that which is transcendent, that which is meaningful, that which is related to God's person himself. And to accept that divide is in some sense culturally the very definition of worldliness. Okay. So once we understand what that is, we understand that that's what's splitting us in two. You have to see it. You have to let the light of it come into your eyes. You have to see it, and you have to leave it. So seeing it, seeing what that is, the reason Jesus talked about it is part of the gift of salvation is the gift of discernment, right? Discernment is the idea of you being able to to see what something really is. For you being able to pick up on the truth of something, even if it's not obviously revealed. The ability to make distinctions that are right and be able to understand what's really there. 
what we would refer to as spiritual sight, discernment, okay? And it's incredibly important that you see worldliness for what it is. You cannot be free of worldliness if you won't see it for what it is. Okay, so there's five quick steps to it. One is, it's hidden. Worldliness isn't in your face. It's hidden. And most of its power is in the fact that it's hidden. And the reason that it's hidden, hidden is because it's absorbed. So one of the things you could, if, you could say is, okay, Nick, you're saying I have two religions if I'm feeling this about my faith. But I, look, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I did not accept mammon as my Lord and Savior. And that's true. The way worldliness takes a hold of us and the way mammon becomes our God is not by preaching to us and seeking to persuade us because that would essentially be appealing to something that is part of the divine image. It would be appealing to reason and right and persuasion. It's much too sinister for that. It's just saying, don't you want to taste this? Don't you want things to be easier? Don't you want—and we, we just marinate in it. It's like I, I say in the book, it's not like hearing a sermon. It's like walking through a drenching mist for like three days and then wondering why you're shivering, right? You just kind of got soaked through over time, and now you're cold, and now you're shivering, and you can't figure out why you're shivering, and it's because the mist has soaked you through. And so we go, look, look how did this happen? It happens because we're, we're cooking in that soup. We're going to taste like the split peas. It's the, most, it's the most functional thing that happens because human beings, listen, you may not know this about this. We all want to exist in this philosophical world where we can say what's right and wrong, what's true or false, but most of the things that happen in human life are psychological. It's just we're a certain kind of creature, and we are the kind of creature that absorbs. That's why you don't want your 14-year-old hanging out with that guy, right? Of course she has a good head on her shoulders, but it doesn't matter because humans absorb. That's why who you're around, who you choose to make your friends, for example, in your family, is the most fundamental thing about who you'll be in five years. Because you will absorb so much more than you will learn. Because we are absorbing creatures. That's why there's a church. That's why we come together in this thing called fellowship. That's why there's the body of Christ. Because you will become more Christian through absorption than ever from hearing these sermons. My sermons set the agenda for our life together, but I— you become a Christian in interacting with and being with each other because we're absorbers, but that's also how we become worldly. That's how mammon becomes our Lord and Savior, and we start to put our hope in it. Now, what that means is this. When worldliness, when mammon speaks, we feel like she's talking to our heart. Right? When, so when, when you're, like, you're struggling in, the, in a relationship, right? Let's say you're having a really hard time with your spouse. And you came to me, and let's say I wasn't your pastor, and I said, I said, listen, you know what? Life is too short for you to be unhappy. It's too short for you to be unhappy. And you know what? You deserve more than this. You deserve more than this. You deserve to be happy. Who has the right to tell you you can't be happy? Right? Your spouse isn't doing their part. They promised. When you got married, they promised to do stuff like to cherish you and love you. And they're not doing that. They're not fulfilling their part of the bargain. And it was a bargain. Make no mistake about it. And I think, I think you need to do something different. I need to think maybe you need to look for somebody else, right? And when I say that to you, if you've been struggling for three months to 16 years in your marriage, and I say that, you're going to feel like I'm talking to this deep place inside you where the real you really lives. You're going to be like, he's talking right to me. Oh, some of you, like, you even know, like, I'm making fun of that and saying that it's horrifically wicked. But even while I was saying that, you were like, I know I do deserve to be happy. Like, you were, I mean, <laughs> right? Because it feels so deep, like, he knows me. Yeah, that's so, that's so me. Okay, here's why it's you, okay? Because worldliness has made you. Because you've been absorbing worldliness for so long, worldliness has shaped your feelings, it's shaped your consciousness, it's shaped your assumptions, it's shaped your emotions, it's shaped, it's shaped your conscience, it's shaped everything about your internal life. And so when I speak the lying tongue of worldliness, 
to the lying heart worldliness has been forming in your life for decades. It feels like the native language of your heart. It feels so authentic and true, and it is a lie from the pit of hell. It is the most ridiculous and horrific nonsense. It is the most fundamentally immoral tripe that could possibly exist, and it feels like you're becoming real again when you hear it. And it's because you are so rooted, so formed, so brainwashed, so Stockholm syndromed into the voice of worldliness that it sounds like the voice of God. But it's not because the voice of worldliness tells the truth. It's because the voice of worldliness got to preset your heart to its voice before it spoke. But it's not the voice of truth. It's not the voice of life. It's not light for your eyes. It's just more darkness. And you can only realize that if you realize that a lot of the voice of your heart you've absorbed, you didn't even realize it was coming in, and yet it controls the very narrative of everything you think, feel, and believe. And so when sin speaks, you laugh. You open your arms wide. You hope in it. But in reality, what Jesus is saying is that worldliness, it's not just sin that deserves, that creates guilt, which deserves condemnation. It is also deforming, destroying, and weakening. Worldliness makes human beings that were created to become strong incredibly weak. And that weakness feeds off itself. Because when you're weak, you do the easy thing. And when you do the easy thing, bad things tend to happen. And so you want to get out of the bad thing that happens, and there's two things you can do. You can do the thing that's twice as hard as the original thing, or something that's just as easy as the easy thing you just did. And guess what you do? You do the easy thing again and make it worse. And then you can either do something that's three times harder than the first thing and make it right, or you can like double down and do the easy thing again. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to do the easy thing again. Do you see where this is going? You keep doubling down and get digging out is harder, and yet you're weaker each time. The reason worldliness can control us is because it's sapping all of our spiritual energy. It's, it's, it's twisting and breaking down all the divine potential that's in us. And it's le- all that's left is like the most visceral, gutty, sensual, reactive animalness about us. And then we wonder why we behave like we're, like, vaguely de-haired chimpanzees half the time. And we, and we use, like, you know, scientific explanations of evolution as, like, as, like, moral blow-offs. I've seen men do this all the time. But when, when you realize what's going on. Like when this comes to the surface and you realize it, if you believe, if you respond, wait a second, that's what's going on. That's why I feel this way. That's why my faith is going the opposite direction it's supposed to. That's why the joy and peace of Christ isn't present. That's why I've been trying so hard and getting nothing in return. That's why I've studied the Bible so much and seem like I know nothing about God. That's why this is happening. It's because I have this absorbed faith. I didn't even know what's happening. I didn't see it was there. I didn't want to hear what Jesus said. And it has been messing with me this whole time. And every time it talks, it sounds like it's speaking sanity, and then I act according to it, and I get farther away from God, and I get deeper in this nonsense, and now I can't even be honest with anybody at church, and so we, I can't grow in fellowship with them, and so I'm not absorbing anything from the community of Christ, and I'm just spiraling out of control. This is crazy. That's what's happening! You have to see it. You have to see it wide-eyed. You have to open your eyes, your spiritual eyes, as wide as you can, and let that light in. And you have to realize how much time you've lost, and how much has been wasted, and how, how weak you are, and how just sort of off—and you have to see it, and savor it, and believe it, and choose it. Jesus said, he said, your eye, your ability to spiritually discern— 
determines everything. It determines everything about you, about your spiritual life. If you will see what he is saying about this, and you will believe him, you, light can enter the discernment of your spiritual life, and it can fill your whole life. And if you close your eyes to it, I don't care what you say you believe. I don't care how often you come to church. I don't care how much you read the Bible. I don't care how long you gut it out. I don't care how good a man you are or good a woman you are. It doesn't matter how many degrees you get. It doesn't matter how polite you are to waitresses. It does not matter. Your soul will be full of darkness. There will be no life in it. You will feel torn apart. And you'll believe the only remedy for it is to give up on Jesus, because at least you can will one thing. And you will. And thousands of people in America do that every single day. And you will either be one of them or you will not be one of them. And Jesus says that has everything to do with whether or not you will see it. And then you have to leave it. It's one thing to say that your relationship is doomed. It's another thing to break up. You understand? You have to see it, and you have to leave it. You see, the Bible uses this word, sanctify or sanctification, which means it comes from the word for holy. It means to set apart. It means to take something and to set it apart for a specific purpose with a specific identity for, for a particular reason. Okay? And here's the thing. You are already sanctified. We're all already sanctified. Because most of us are already sanctified to the world. <laughs> We're already set apart for mammon's purposes. We already have mammon's identity. We're already doing mammon's stuff. And if, if you look at this, like, you can see that, like, being set apart for mammon, like, the stuff is kind of parallel, right? The, there's the, the flesh wants stuff, and the spirit wants stuff. And with, through the flesh you're getting, through the spirit you're serving— Everybody wants attention, and getting attention, people telling you you're fantastic is your truth, and that's, that's how the flesh wants to interact with truth. It wants to, it wants to say, I'm fantastic. But you see, the Spirit doesn't. The Spirit just wants the truth. It wants us to live in what God affirms, and so on. What's practical, which for me in the flesh is my good, as opposed to what actually is good and what God practices, God cares about what's actually beautiful. What we care about is what we find pleasurable or delightful. That is my delight. And right to us is me getting what I feel like I deserve, which means I have enough power to get what I'm going to call justice for myself in the flesh, as opposed to us actually receiving from God what's right and acting accordingly to that, that is, to see what God sees as justice. You see, you're, you're already set apart for something. And in this moment, you're being set apart for one thing or the other, is what Jesus is claiming. Now you might say, well, I just want to be my own person. And listen, to, uh, there's a certain extent to which that's a little bit admirable. And I realize that's very much with the spirit of the age. But you see, here's one of Jesus' assumptions that you may not be sharing if you think that. Jesus believes that we are dependent creatures fundamentally for our existence. Not just in terms that we're created, but in terms of our very being. Right? Like, that's why we search for meaning. Why have human beings, like, as long as there have been human beings, written about meaning and made, you know, believed in faiths or made up religions or painted stuff and buried people with tools and like, like, as long as there have been people, there's all this concatenation of meaning and, and symbolism and sacredness and all this kind of stuff. Like, what's the deal with that? Like, if we were self-existent beings, we wouldn't need any of that. God doesn't look outside himself for meaning, yet every human does when they're not pretending they don't need to. Human beings are, by definition, dependent creatures. We find ourselves in something else. Look, that can be golf or fishing, but we find ourselves in something else. And what Jesus is saying is, if you boil all of it down, right, you, you create a taxonomy tree of what, what leads to what, and you get down to just two options, ultimately, for a human being. It's either mammon or God. And you can't have both. Jesus said, I've come into the world and I've sanctified myself so that they, that is all the believers that would come after him, would be sanctified. That is set apart for his purpose, his identity, his direction. And he said the way that happens 
is by being actually, in certain ways, less focused on the terrestrial and more focused on the transcendent in God. That is, he says, look, if you want to know, if you focus on one thing, what will take care of itself? He said, there's only one answer to that question that Jesus was, was willing to give. And he said this. He said, listen, quit worrying about your clothes and your food and all these practicalities. Yes, do your duty, but don't run after them. That's paganism, and pagans worship mammon, right? He said, but you— if God is your master, if you put your trust in him, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything else. And all these things in that context means food, clothing, and shelter. That is, from your most basic temporal needs all the way up to your greatest needs. That is, everything you need will be added to you as well. If preeminent is seeking God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Now, I'm going to end with— Let's just end with this. If we're honest, a lot of us are actually terrified of that. Seeking God's righteousness, seeking to become righteous, seeking to be godly, that godliness would be the, the thing that we seek more than anything else in our lives. Our fears is that that's going to make us, like, religious. And the religious people are, like, judgmental and hypocritical, and they don't know how to have any fun, Right? Which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 isn't true, right? He attacks religious hypocrites in the first section. He's like, quit being these like idiot shallow people who only care about clothes. That's so not interesting. You see, there's this, there's this passage in the Book of Common Prayer, which I think may go all the way back to Cromner in the, in the 17th or 16th or 17th century, where there's this prayer. It's a collect. That's what they call prayers in the Book of Common Prayer. And it starts out, God, the one without whom nothing is strong— Nothing is holy. And it goes on to pray to that God. See, there was this recognition that it was God that made things strong. Because evil can't create anything. It can only pervert things. It can only make zombies out of humans. It can't make people. And so because of that, evil can ever, only ever be this twisting, parasitic thing. All of the life, all of the enjoyment, all of the excitement, all of the religious hypocrisy belongs to worldliness. It is the use of religion to ingratiate yourself in the world. It is by definition on that side. Listen, the, mo the oldest kind of slander is to accuse something else of what's wrong with you. What do you think worldliness, flesh, and devils are going to accuse Jesus of? Everything that's true about the worldliness, the flesh, and devils. They are boring. They are lifeless. They have no purpose in future. They are the twisting of creation, not the glory of creation. They don't know how to have fun. It is worldliness, death, and hell that has no celebration. It is Christ, and in the light of the, of the light of the eye that he gives, that brings life and light. He doesn't say, it doesn't say in 2 Peter, add to your faith strictness, and to strictness meanness, and to meanness legalism, and to legalism hypocrisy, right? No, the, the end is love, Right? All of that work, all of that effort that Christ would be formed in us was so that our passions would be unleashed. The problem with your, yours and my profligate, licentious, adulterous lusts is two things. They're wicked and they're weak. They're so weak. There's just nothing to them. They're just froths. They're vapor. And for some of us, that is even the passion in our marriages. Because our passion for our spouse isn't rooted in anything bigger than their bodies or their availability. But all that Christ is doing is to make us one, to seek one greater thing, his kingdom and his righteousness, to make us strong— and in the vibrancy of that strength to unleash all of the passions and the life in us onto the world. To make us people of substance. 
in a world that is compulsively addicted to vapor. And the, the, we're, we're going to talk the rest of the time in this series about becoming positively people of spiritual substance. But that process cannot get anywhere without seeing and leaving our second God. There, there's no way for me to, in a couple sentences, ask you to give up your life and to give up your second religion and to give up all your secondary hopes and to give up the God that really controls you, that you've absorbed all these years, that speaks your own heart language. What I'm telling you is you can't live. You cannot find the life of Christ in that place. And the only thing that can be done is for you to allow yourself to see what you don't want to see and for you to leave the deforming God that's killing you behind. Let's pray. God, as we, um, as we come into this series, and as we get ready to spend part of our day celebrating, enjoying each other, enjoying the things you've created, food and fun and jokes and laughter and community and friendship and family and life, I pray that right now, we as a people together, all of us individually, and we as a people in our hearts, would expunge the control and the slavery of worldliness. That the God mammon would, ha would have to leave the building. That we would, we would see what has been there, what has been tearing us apart, and we would wish enough to be free, enough to live, enough to have light in our eyes and in all of our body, that we would choose you really that we would repent of mammon and believe you as the Christ. And I pray, even as we sing these songs right now, that that's what we would be doing in our heart while we are singing these truths. Holy Spirit, please come and miraculously enable us to be free. Do what it says, what we memorized in Philippians 2, 12, that we would, that it, it is you working in us both to will and to act towards this good purpose of yours. I pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.